take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy. We'll be jumping back into our series this morning uh, on the book of 2 Timothy, looking at the message uh, titled this morning, Standing Approved. Appreciate your prayers for me last week. Uh, Connie and I had the privilege of going back to our first church out of seminary uh, up in the Roanoke, Virginia area and preaching homecoming service. Uh, we've been gone 26 years. It's amazing how much some of those people have aged. <laughs> but uh, anyway, was good to see everybody there. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll be uh, picking up in verse 14 of chapter 2. Uh, Paul says, remind them of these things. Now, what things? Well, he's been talking to them about the crucified life, that we are to die with Christ, that we might also live with him. And he's given those great images of the soldier and the athlete and the farmer as pictures of the Christian life. So he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, having have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Father, we know that... This is the word of the Lord, and we thank you for it. Help us to direct our minds and hearts, our full attention to it. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, He who has ears to hear. Because Lord, we know not everybody does. But he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. May we do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's said that from early on, even in childhood, Robert Louis Stevenson knew what he wanted to be in life. He wanted to be a prolific writer. 
Of course, he went on to write such books as Kidnapped and Treasure Island. But he also discovered that at a very young age that being a writer would demand certain disciplines out of him. He knew that number one, he was going to have to study the great writers. He was going to have to read their books to see how they handled words and phrases and developed scenes and different plots and characters. And then number two, he knew that he was going to have to practice his own writing skills, implementing and imitating some of the principles that he had learned from these great writers. And so they said everywhere Robert Louis Stevenson went, he had two, two books tucked up under his arm. Number one, there would always be some great classic that he was reading. And number two, there would be a blank pad that he could take it out and as moments of inspiration hit him, he could write his thoughts down. You see, more than anything else in all of life, when it came to literature, when it came to the world of literature, Robert Louis Stevenson wanted to stand approved. Now, folks, I want to ask you what your desire is this morning. Is it your desire that before God you will stand approved? Is it your desire that you will be that honorable vessel fit for every good purpose in the master's business? That's what Paul is going to write to Timothy about here. Now, before we get into it, I do want to mention a few things. One that I've mentioned earlier about Paul and Timothy and their relationship. It would be a mistake for you and I to say, these are words written only from a pastor to a younger pastor. And therefore, they have no application to us. That'd be a mistake. We know that as he closes the book, he, the, the pronoun he uses is the, is the plural. He's talking to not only Timothy, but the congregation that he pastors there. And also we know in the scripture that there is never one standard that is set for the clergy and another standard that is set for the laity. There is only one standard in the word of God, and that is that we are all to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. And so we are all to live consecrated lives. It is to be our desire that we would stand before the Lord approved one day. Well, what is going to be involved in all that? Timothy is going to be told that his words, his thoughts, his doctrine, his conduct, everything is going to be involved in standing approved before the Lord one day. Let's look at those one at a time. First of all, this morning, if you want to be a servant of God who stands approved before the Lord, you're going to have to guard your words. Look at verse 14 and following. In verse 14, Paul says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Then look at verse 16, he says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then over in verse 23, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. 
If you and I are going to be workers, Christian workers who stand approved before the Lord, we're going to have to absolutely guard our words. Folks, words matter. And as Christians, we need to understand that. Words matter. Speech matters. Man alone has been given this wonderful gift of communicating with one another through languages. It is a great gift, but while it is a great gift, it is also a great responsibility. Makes me think of the joke of one lady in a church one time. Everybody in the church knew that she was the biggest gossip in the church and in the community. That's what she was known for. She was convicted on one occasion of her words and she came forward during the invitation time and she said, Pastor, I need to lay my tongue on the altar. And he said, well, ma'am, our altar's only 15 feet long, but go ahead, give it your best shot. Words matter. Most families know, most pastors in churches know that there may be one person in a family. There may be one or two people in a church that cause a tornado with their words everywhere they go. Every family outing, every church event is going to be tarnished when those one or two show up. They'll cause division in a youth group. They'll cause division in a choir. They'll cause division in a church social or a Sunday school class or at a family holiday gathering because they can't control their words. They don't guard their speech. Now, folks, that's the broader application to verse 14. And we're going to come back around to that in a moment. But there's also a more specific application to verse 14 that Paul wants Timothy to understand he wants him to understand that he's he's to guard his words when it comes to what he teaches in the church and what he says we're to guard our words we are to speak truthfully about things pertaining to God Speak truthfully about things pertaining to God. This one has special application to the minister or to anybody in the church who is charged with teaching the Word of God. I want you to keep in mind Christianity was very young at this time that Paul's writing this. The church was getting established. There were those who were coming into the church and sometimes they were teaching heresy and people like Timothy didn't have the complete canon of scripture that you and I have today and so there would be those who came into the congregation and the elders in a church had to carefully weigh what some of these people were teaching and some of them that were coming in and purporting to be teachers were actually heretics And they were trying to lead the church astray. There were some, like we'll see in a moment, who were denying the validity of the resurrection. Others were denying that Jesus was ever going to come back one day for his church. And still others were denying that Jesus had come in the first place in a real body. They were saying he came as a phantom, as a ghost. 
And so the apostles and the early church leaders were having to fight all of these heresies as people would come in with their words and say things to lead the congregation astray. And Paul wants Timothy to know that as a pastor, he's going to have to be on his guard against all of this. The worst possible use for speech would be to speak falsely about God. When we talk about God, we need to talk with great honor and respect. The approved workman must be careful that he or she teaches the truth about God. Why? Because our words about God, our doctrine matters. And false doctrine misrepresents God. Folks, nobody likes to be misrepresented. Even sinful men and women don't want to be misrepresented. God is a holy God and He has revealed Himself to us. He doesn't want us misrepresenting Him. And so we need to be very careful in how we teach God's truth. Look at verses 14 and 16 and 17. Paul points out to Timothy that there are dire consequences to misrepresenting God. He points out that it is unprofitable. It is useless. There in verse 14 he says it ruins those who listen. Verse 16 he says it leads to ungodliness. And in verse 17 he says it will spread like gangrene. Now all of this talk that he is mentioning here refers to arguing over speculative matters of theology. At least scholars say that they believe that's what he's talking about in verse 14. Speculative matters of theology. When you come down to verse 16, commentators agree that there he's talking about more weighty matters of theology. Some people like to argue about things that we're not really specifically told anything about in the Scripture. Now folks, we need to discuss those things that are taught in the Scripture. I happen to believe there's not enough theological talk in today's evangelical church. There needs to be more of it. There needs to be healthy discussions as we try to come to a better understanding of what God is teaching us. But then on the other hand, there are discussions that are not helpful at all. They're pointless and even dangerous. In the Middle Ages, some theologians were discussing and arguing about how many angels could dance on the head of a needle. Well, who cares? What difference does something like that make? And you get to arguing about some of these matters that were not told in the Word of God. And Paul's point to Timothy is it can be disrupting to a fellowship and even damaging. If we go beyond the Word of God and start teaching only our opinions or traditions, that's dangerous. Remember what Jesus said about that in Mark chapter 7? He said, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold only to the traditions of men. He was talking about the Pharisees. 
He was saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of a father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine that you might have been helped by is now Corban, that is to say dedicated to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God for your tradition. That hurts people. And it's also very damaging. False doctrine is also very damaging. As I've said to you before, it matters what you believe. It really does. Some people say, well, don't I just, what if I'm just sincere in whatever I do believe? Well, that's not good enough. It matters what you believe. Is it true? Is it what God has taught us about salvation and the Christian life and how we go to heaven one day? Does it honor God's word? It matters. Everything we say needs to line up with the word of God. Now you know I I realize that the church today we live in this postmodern age where some people are saying that everything's relative And there's no such thing as absolute truth. That's what some would have us to believe. But you know what? Even they don't believe that out in the everyday world. You take them up to a skyscraper and tell them to jump. Tell a couple of people to jump. Say, hey, truth might be relative. You might die. You might not. You might just float down and, and touch gently. Somebody else might go splat. They would never do that. Why? Because there's this absolute truth uh, called what? Gravity. And if you jump off of a skyscraper, guess what? You're going to die. Unless you have a parachute, of course. Something to interrupt gravity. But isn't it interesting how in the empirical world around us, the world that we observe, all the evidence that we see around us, in the empirical world we know that there are absolutes, but then you come to the theoretical world and the rational realm and some people want to try to say, hey, there's no absolute truth. Well, the fact that there's absolute truth in the empirical realm ought to be evidence that there's absolute truth in the unseen world as well. It matters what you believe. My point is that truth is truth. What is true is true. It's not relative. Truth matters. When it comes to Scripture, you can believe all the wrong things about God and about salvation. And one day when you stand before Him, I can assure you it will matter a great deal. Now look at verse 17. There were two men that Paul names here who were falsely teaching that the resurrection had already passed. Verse 17 says that that they had definitely gone astray and because they had gone astray and yet they were being allowed to teach what they were teaching, they were also upsetting the faith of some. Now what these two men were teaching was probably very close akin to what Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians 15. In all probability what they were doing was denying a real, actual, physical, bodily resurrection. They were spiritualizing the resurrection to say that if you were a believer in Christ you were already spiritually 
raised. And this spiritual awakening or resurrection was all you had. There was no future hope beyond that. Now folks, certainly it's true that the resurrection is going to change us now. We're to walk now in the newness of life that a resurrected Christ gives us. But that's only one aspect of the resurrection. It's also very important in the Word of God to see that Christ was literally raised from the dead. Christ was bodily raised from the dead. And He ascended back to the Father. And today at the Father's right hand, He is preparing a real place for those who know Him called heaven. And He's going to come back one day bodily that we might be raised with Him. And we're going to be given those real glorified bodies. A real body. A bodily resurrection. That is absolutely essential to believing the gospel. But these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were denying all of that. And Paul says they're upsetting the faith of some. Now, by the way, folks, unless you think this is some argument that stayed back in the first century world has no application to us today, I can assure you it does have application to us. You can go right down the road here to UNCC and take a religion class with Dr. James Tabor. Dr. James Tabor, just like Hymenaeus and Philetus, denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is not just a first century problem. It's with us today. Verse 17, Paul says that such false doctrine in the church is like gangrene. Gangrene occurs when the life's blood to tissue is cut off and when that happens the flesh begins to die. Now the bad thing about gangrene is that not only will the flesh in that spot die but unless you get rid of the gangrene it'll spread and overtake the whole body. That's why if you've got gangrene in your foot, guess what they do? They amputate your foot. Because better to lose a foot than to lose your life. If gangrene goes unchecked, it'll destroy the whole body. And Paul is saying to Timothy here that if he allows men like Hymenaeus and Philetus to continue to teach false doctrine in the body like they're doing, it, they're already hurting the faith of some. He says, but if you let them go unchecked, the life of that body is going to be destroyed. So again, truth matters. Truth matters. We've got to guard our words when it comes to speaking about God. But then back out to the wider application of guarding our words. An approved workman is to guard against all corrupt speech. Let me ask you this morning, what comes out of your mouth? Does gossip come out of your mouth? How about backbiting or speech that tears others down instead of building others up? Verse 16, he refers to all of this as worldly chatter and empty chatter. Write down Ephesians 4.29. Paul says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. How about your speech? Honestly evaluate your speech. 
your words in your family, does it help your family or hurt, tear down your family? How about your Sunday school class? How about whatever group you participate in in the church? What are your words like? Do your words bless God and bless people or, or tear one another down? What are your words like? Folks, if we're going to stand approved before God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, we're going to have to honestly evaluate our speech how do we use language? How do we talk about people? Do we edify or do we tear down? Do we encourage or do we insult? Do we gossip? Do we run others down? What do we do with our words? By listening to our words, would anybody say, there goes a Christian man or there goes a Christian woman? Do your words reflect faith in Jesus Christ? Dr. William Barclay gave a good rule of thumb, said at the end of the day when we evaluate our words, if our words have helped people draw nearer to God and nearer to their fellow man, then our words have passed the test. I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Guard your words. But secondly, Paul notes here that if we're going to be approved workmen, we need to make a holy presentation of ourselves to God. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Then look over at verse 20. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And we'll get more to that later. But folks, we not only need to guard our words, but we need to make sure that we are continually making a holy presentation of our lives to God. Now, if you're reading from the King James Version, verse 15 says, Study to show yourself approved. But today, the way language is used for this particular word, that's not an inclusive enough word. The ESV says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. The NAS says, be diligent to present yourself. Those are better renderings of, of this verse here. Yes, it involves the study of God's Word, that we would be faithfully handling God's Word, but it includes our life as well. In our study of God's Word and in our application of that in life, are we doing our utmost to present ourselves to God as one approved? He says, rightly handling the Word of God. The, word, the Greek word is uh, orthotomeo. Ortho. Does that ring a bell with anything? Ortho? Orthodon What's an orthodontist do? Straightens your teeth, right? Orthopedics, what do they do? Straighten bones out. Orthotomeo. Paul's talking about here rightly straightening out and handling the Word of God and bringing everything to bear on presenting ourselves as a workman before God who will not need to be ashamed. Folks, are you doing that in your Christian life? What verse 15 is talking about here 
is the Christian, living the Christian life can't simply be left to chance. Where you just kind of float along and go whatever direction everybody else is going. No. You have to bring all of your energies to bear on presenting yourself before God as an approved workman. It's like Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 3. We need to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It takes forethought. It takes purpose. It takes discipline. We are to bring all of our energies toward one ultimate goal. And that being of standing before God one day approved. Folks, that's what a true believer does. Now the word approved here carries the idea that we've stood up to all the tests of life. You've been tested. And your Christian faith shines through. You've gone through tests and tribulations of life. And through it all, you've kept your eyes on the Lord and drawn closer to Him so that you get to the end of your life and your life is presented before God as one approved. Is that how you're living your life? Is that what you're allowing trials and tests in your life to do? To draw you nearer to God that you might stand approved one day? That's the picture here. You say, is that really worth it? Yeah, it's really worth it because again, that's what a true believer does. And look at the great promise that he gives in verse 19 here. He says, the Lord knows those who are His. God knows those who belong to Him. For example, God knows the difference between a Timothy on the one hand and a Hymenaeus and a Fletus on the other hand. God knows those who are His. Folks, God knows the difference between a true Christian and a false one. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He knows. In John 10, Jesus said, How long will you keep... The, the Jews asked Jesus, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and yet you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life. God knows those who are His. Isn't that great to know? Now, it's believed that verse 19 here harkens all the way back to Numbers chapter 16. You remember the story in Numbers chapter 16? Korah's rebellion. Korah is a guy who rose up in rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And the Lord said to him, said, you, you need to separate yourself from Korah and, and Dathan and all those who are following them because I'm going to deal with them. And, and what happened, the, the, the ground opened up and swallowed them and the ground closed back up. And the promise given to Moses and the children of Israel was that God knows those who are His. And that's what this verse is probably referring back to. 
as you're presenting your life as that workman to God that doesn't need to be ashamed, you're honoring Him in your words, in your thoughts, in everything you do. You can be assured that it is worth it because God knows you. And you will ultimately be with Him one day and you will stand approved. Folks, the Lord is not confused over those who belong to Him. I want to ask you this morning, do you belong to God? Are you His? Does He know you and do you know Him? Some people are saying today, even in the Bible-believing, evangelical, conservative churches across America, some are making predictions through their polling and all this kind of stuff they do, digging deep into what people believe. Some results are coming out that as little as 5 or 6% of the membership in evangelical churches today are truly converted. Five or six percent. That's it. I hope they're wrong. But that's sobering, isn't it? Do you know the Lord? Have you been born again? I didn't ask you if you've joined a church or been baptized. I didn't even ask you if you said the sinner's prayer. You can say the sinner's prayer a thousand times and still be lost. Have you been born again? Have you been regenerated from above? Your life has become a new life in Christ where all things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. If that's not happened to you, guess what? You're lost. Have you been converted? Do you honestly know the Lord and do you seek the mind and the face of the Lord? And is your life giving evidence of that? The Lord knows those who are truly His. And that's the assurance that believers can live with. That through whatever we have to go through in this life, whatever trials you face in your life, whatever opposition, whatever persecution you might end up facing in your life because you name the name of Jesus Christ, guess what? You know the best thing of all, and that's that God knows you. You belong to Him. The Lord knows those who are His. Third thing about standing approved before God. We need to deal with sin in the church and in our life. Look at what he says at the end of verse 19. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul uses the metaphor here of a large house. And you take a large house and in a large house you will find some valuables in it. You'll have silver and gold and, and china and maybe some antiques. Just precious things that are very valuable. And you honor those valuables by bringing them out perhaps for a special occasion. An anniversary dinner. 
a special birthday party. Or when you're having the preacher over for dinner, right? You bring those honorable vessels out. And then a typical house would also have the ordinary and common, those things you bring out, like when you have your deacon over. Then, you'd, then the typical household would also have dishonorable vessels in it. Commentators write a lot about this one. And everybody in here probably 70 years and older knows what I'm about to talk about. The dishonorable vessels in an ancient home. You know what, you know what he's talking about, don't you? What houses do? What would you do in a household before in, indoor plumbing? What would you have under your bed at night? Chamber pot. My grandparents called it a thunder jug. A dishonorable vessel. Nobody brought that dishonorable vessel out and showed it off to your company. <laughs> These young people might laugh, but I tell you what, on a 20 degree night at 3 a.m. in the morning, you're pretty glad you had that chamber pot under your bed and didn't have to hit that trail going out to the outhouse, right? Dishonorable vessels. Honorable vessels, dishonorable. And Paul's using a metaphor here of this large house. And commentators believe he's mixing the metaphors a little bit. On the one hand, he's talking about the church at large. And on the other hand, he's also talking about your individual heart. And so he's talking about us corporately and he's talking about us individually. And he's saying corporately, there are dishonorable vessels. Now the dishonorable vessels that Paul was talking about to Timothy here would have been people like Hymenaeus and Philetus who were teaching teaching false doctrine and what was he saying to Timothy you need to stay you need to distance yourself from people like that the Bible says to Christians today that there are people in our relation there's some relationships that you need to pull away from okay you need to continue to try to be a witness to them right and win them to the Lord but you probably need to pull away from some of the people you might be hanging out with right People who are ungodly and dragging you down. You need to cleanse yourself of some of your relationships. And then in your own heart there may be some things that are dishonorable, some things that are unclean. Maybe you've allowed some thoughts some desires, some motives to enter into your mind and heart that you know before God are not pleasing to God. And if you're going to stand before God one day, you need to let God deal with some of those things in your mind and heart that you know aren't pleasing to Him. So in your relationships and in your own heart, are you willing to evaluate what is honorable, what's dishonorable? Are you willing to embrace the honorable? Are you willing to separate yourself away from the dishonorable? Paul's saying to Timothy here, that's what you've got to do if you're going to stand approved before God. 
got to guard your words. You got to make that holy presentation of yourself before God constantly. And you've got to deal with sin in the church and in your own heart. And the result of all that, you'll stand approved before God. Could I be speaking to somebody here this morning that needs to do some of that house cleaning? Maybe there's some things going on in your relationships that you know aren't pleasing to God. Maybe there are, maybe there are words that you know are not honoring to God. Maybe you're just kind of going through your Christian life and, and every day in your Christian life you're not even living with that concept of, of putting yourself as that living sacrifice before God. You're just kind of letting things take place by accident. You're just kind of coasting. Folks, we need to change in all those areas. Every day as believers, we need to seek the Lord. We need to get to know Him in His Word. We need to be hiding His Word in our hearts. We need to be evaluating anything in our life that might not be pleasing to Him. And, and having the courage and the fortitude and the determination in our Christian life to ask Him to deal with it and clean it out of our life. Uh, we need to be living as a holy people of God so that we'll be salt and light to the world that we need to be. And again, the good news is the Bible says one of these days we're going to stand before the Bema Seat of Christ. When you stand there, do you want to hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. What's going on in your life? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your relationships? If you keep living the way you're living right now, will you be on course to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? Or, you know, sometimes we think, well, I know this is not right, this is not right. One of these days I'm going to deal with that. One of these days and those habits get further entrenched and further entrenched and further entrenched. If you know there's relationships and words and actions and motives in your life that are not pleasing to God, deal with it now. Make it your passion in life to stand approved before God. Father, help us to be honest with our Christian lives. Are we seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness? Or are we just mouthing words? Are we just saying prayers and mouthing words and going to church and checking it off the list and with the attitude, been there, done that? Lord, help us to live as those who are serious about being salt and light for you. I pray in Jesus' name.